Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Q, the president and CEO of Honeywell Connected Enterprise, and we discuss their journey to apply digital transformation to the operational world, how to manage fear in executives, and three things to consider when going through the M&A process. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello. G'day. Can you hear me? Yeah, there we go. And you can hear me? I can, loud and clear. We, this is a very special episode, Q. I'm so happy that you're here. Yes, we, (laughs) this is our new studio. And so, I know it's not done yet. So it'll be done by the end of this week, but the lighting is obviously a problem. Okay. I'm sorry. So new studio problems, but how are you today? Let's talk about you. I'm great. Sunny in Atlanta. The weather's hot. Yeah, we're down in Florida. It's hot too. I love your background. You've got the Honeywell Forge. That is such a cool name. That word forge, we were talking about it in our show prep and I just like, mm-hmm. it sounds really awesome. It is awesome. So what is it? Can you give me a little background about what forge is? Well, Forge is our, uh, is our IoT platform. I think of it as a really a data architecture and it allows us to pull data from the physical world in a very efficient, cost-effective way, normalize it, get it staged for the cloud, and then, up, you know, well, then we can run analytics and other cool stuff on it. Um, that's what it does. So who's using this? We are at Honeywell. We're using it. We don't. We don't really sell Forge as a platform. That's not the business we're in. We really are in the business of solving customer problems and giving them value uh, with applications. And because we cover so many industries and uh, work on so many different applications, we needed a platform for ourselves to get to market a lot faster. So, what are you just teasing us then? You've got the Honeywell Forge everywhere, and then you don't sell it to customer. You don't sell it. No, out we there? sell the application. Oh. We just don't sell the platform. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I get it. It's special, you know. You have to work at Honeywell to get to use it. Come on now. I know some people that work at Honeywell. I got to talk to Tony over in oh, Quantum cool. Computing, and then uh, about a year ago, I talked to Sheila Jordan, who's. Mm-hmm. Do you know her? Well, I hired her into Honeywell. You hired her? She is a badass. Like, I really like her a lot. She has this book. I gave it to my wife. My wife loved it, and it was pretty awesome. Well, she's at Honeywell now. How did you find her? Well, it took me a year to convince her to come to Honeywell. So you've got to know that Honeywell is a special place. There's someone like Sheila is there. Yeah. My dad worked for Honeywell back in the day. Yeah. That's when I found out that they were more than just thermostats. (laughs) (laughs) We don't make those anymore. You don't make them at all anymore? No, no. But your name is on them everywhere. We are, but we spun that business out. So Residio now owns Honeywell. It's just branded Honeywell, but we don't make it anymore. So they decided to keep the logo then? Yeah, to keep the brand. All right. This is exciting. All right. So we talked about Tony, quantum computer guy. Did you hire Tony as well? No, Tony was already there. But you hired Sheila. It took you a year, yep. Sheila Jordan, took you a year to find her. Yep. But you managed to do it. And yes, that's persuasion. It's charm and charisma wins the day, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 
And so then how did you end up? Who, who charmed and charismaed you to go to Honeywell? Well, Darius recruited me into Honeywell. And what's his role? Well, he, he's the CEO of the company. And when he became CEO, he recruited me to help him with a growth agenda. And so it was, you know, I thought it was a pretty uh, amazing vision that he had for the company. And when you have a new CEO come in, people expect change. And I'm kind of a bit of a change junkie. So I knew that people were more receptive to it. And if we wanted to do something like transform to a software business, then this was the place to do it. And so that's your primary objective there is to transform the software business? Yes, my primary, I have two missions actually. One is building a software business that is going to be consequential to the company. Um, and consequential means not 10 to 20% growth, but significantly higher than that. We want to be a big part of Honeywell. That's one. And that's pretty fun. The second one is to help the rest of the company be more software and more digital. Oh, excellent. So you help internally as well. Yeah, we help internally. We've got some cool projects going on internally. But just to help them, and it's a cultural thing. It's a, it's a mindset shift from making pretty important things like airplanes fly to thinking about digital and software in everything we do. So how, like, what are you learning from that shift? It's such a large company. It's, it's hard. I mean, it's, there is a reason why hardware companies make hardware and software companies make software. Doing something in between is not, is certainly not simple. And it is a total mindset shift and skill shift and business model shift in almost every respect. So is the team there, are they like, are you facing a lot of uh, challenges? Are they very receptive? Like what's the, what's the sentiment like? Like what's the feel over there? Are people excited about this? People are very excited. I think where there isn't debate is that we as a company need to do this. Because if you think about the last 20 years and you look at internet technologies, it's really impacted two industries significantly. One is media, kind of the business you're in. And the other one is retail. Those things have completely changed. In the next 20 years, it's everything else. And so there's no debate in our company that this is something we have to do. So it's not a fad. Like It's not like, oh, it's a really fashionable thing to talk, talk about digital and let's go do it. It's really existential because we won't be interesting a decade from today if we don't change and incorporate software in what we do. Where there's debate is how do we do that? And how fast is it? And where should we do it? And that's where there's debate and education that needs to happen uh, along the journey. So, so where, where's your mind at right now? Like, what do you think we should be doing? I'm going to pretend I work at Honeywell. What do you think we should be doing? <laughs> I think that our customers, so I talked about the three things Honeywell does, right? We help build next generation stuff. We help them turn it on and we help them run it. Well, what my business does is we help them optimize it. So what we're really doing is we're applying digital and software technologies to optimize their operations. So we're really applying digital transformation in the operational world. So as an example, if I'm an airline, I care about flying a plane from A to B in the most efficient way. So the fastest way with the minimum fuel consumption safely. 
that's my optimization need there. If I'm running a factory, I might need more yield or high quality products being produced. How do I do that? That's those are examples of optimization in the operational arena. Yeah, I had seen the the OT phrase in the mm-hmm. like the prep a bunch, and I was like, "What is that?" So I go to Google it, and the most common search for that is "What is OT?" <laughs> <laughs> can you give me like? Can you pretend I'm like a three year old and explain to me what that is? Well, we know what IT is, right? So IT is information, typically business and financial information that's collected in a company. Well, OT OT data, you think about it as information that's collected around physical things that happen within a company. And it could be around assets. How's my piece of machinery working? It could be around people. How, how are my frontline workers performing that task? And it could be around process. Am I running my processes according to the standard operating procedures or the quality guidelines within. So it's, there's so much more data in the operational world than the IT world. And so now the, the, the reason why it hasn't been something that people focused on is because it's been so expensive to efficiently collect and make sense of, right? Because it's easy to get information from a computer. It's a lot harder to get information around a thing, a physical thing. And there's so many different things that are out there and there's people and then there's the business process itself just i'm i'm a big geek and i'm just really excited about how how everything is changing and not just for the sake of change just because like i think that the future is incredibly exciting right the mm-hmm. like if you go back to you know the 50s or the 60s or whenever they were imagining like the jetsons type stuff that they were so excited about that. Well, like I feel that we are in such closer reach of these massive technology advancements. It's like we could have self-driving cars right away. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like we could have those right now if regulation allowed for them. Mm-hmm. And then I saw you guys were doing some work with 5G and one of the big applications that we were talking about here were 5G and self-driving cars. Have you guys gotten to work on any of those types of projects that you can talk about? Yeah, well, not me personally in that use case that you mentioned, but um, I think you're right. I think, you know, semiconductor, the cost of chips is so cheap now that, and is getting cheaper that there really isn't a reason why you wouldn't censorize physical things. And if you then can censorize physical things, you can actually connect them. And if you can connect them on a network, like you connect computers, you can then program them. So now you're programming a physical thing. Whereas most people think about software programming for virtual things. So that's a remarkable thing. And what we're doing with Honeywell Forge is not only are we programming physical things, we're controlling them. So it's, it's, we, we can autonomously control them. Because Honeywell, as you know, is a controls company. At the end of the day, it's great to have an idea of what to do, but if you can actually go back into the building or into the machine and physically do it, actuate, how cool is that? So think of it as a self-driving enterprise. <laughs> that is cool. That yeah. When you were talking, uh, you were reminding me of, I saw this documentary a few months ago called Cyborgs mm-hmm. Among Us. is on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen that? No. 
okay, so these people, it's like this underground society of these biohacker type people. And they're like embedding technology into their bodies. And their way that they're doing it is through like tattoo parlors because they will like the laws on surgery. And it's, it's like an mm-hmm. underground industry right now, but it's amazing. So this documentary followed all of these people that have put these sensors inside of their bodies, like temperature sensors, like all these different things, real time monitors of their vitals. And then they just stream that, that data up. And when you were talking, I was like, well, the next step is, you know, you can make artificial limbs and then there'll be artificial cells and then you'll be able to program all of them. Then you'll have like artificial humans. <laughs> That's a scary prospect. It is. Well, it's, it's interesting as far as like the evolution. I don't know how, how weird you want to get today on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but as far as the evolution of humans, like my favorite uh, discussion point was when I heard Elon Musk say mm-hmm. that we're already cyborgs. It's just a bandwidth issue. Like we right. already just go to our technology. It's just, we have to go from our thoughts to our thumbs. And it's just, mm-hmm. you know, if we increase that bandwidth through like Neuralink, now we're like full blown cyborgs. And That's so- That's true. No, it's true. Yeah. You and I, in our lifetimes, will have to like, you know, face the questions of what is human, right? Right. These are, yeah. these are real things that we'll have to talk about. It's a lot of change. I was talking with, um, and I'm curious to know, because we're on the topic of change. I was talking with this guy, Paul from ChangePoint. And we were talking about like companies changing. This was like right when the COVID stuff was mm-hmm. happening. And I was just curious, like for you guys during that transition, like we're, everyone was talking about the transition, but I don't want to necessarily mm-hmm. talk about like the transition. I want to talk about today. Like, are you still seeing impacts or is the organization like firing on all cylinders? I think it's mixed. I mean, we, we certainly have business in the aerospace industry and that's tough. I mean, it's on its back and it would take an, you know, a number of years before it gets back to 2019 levels. But when I, when it comes to my business around, you know, digital transformation, what else can we do? There's enormous demand. If anything, it's accelerated because people, you know, people who run companies, they need safer workers, they need productivity, and they're running out of ways to do that. You can only run so many lean programs at the end of the day, you're looking for other techniques to give you that incremental productivity every year. And so they look at the things that we do with Honeywell Forge as, you know, you know, alternatives to helping them achieve those goals. So we see an acceleration, which is exciting. What's one of the coolest use cases or things you've seen a customer do with Forge? Well, one of the coolest things is it sounds boring, but it's very cool. And it's, uh, it's our application around energy management in a building. So if you, th- if you take a company like Honeywell, we have 1,200 buildings. It's a lot. And we spend hundreds of millions of dollars just running them every year. And the cost of these things sit somewhere between stationary and telephone uh, expenses. So we don't actually know how much we spend. But what we are able to do with Honeywell Forge energy optimization is we can actually optimize our entire fleet of buildings and manage their energy. So it's hundreds of millions of dollars of spend that we can optimize. And we can save somewhere between 10 to 30% of the energy spend. And we do that because we can efficiently collect data. We can run optimization models on them. 
And then we can reach back into the building and actually change, make adjustments to your thermostat or your boiler and chiller and optimize the building automatically. Oh, that's amazing. And you, yeah, you it guys, is amazing because this yeah. is something you cannot do manually. Huh. And you guys know thermostats too, right? Because Yeah, very, we know the how way the building works. But yeah. in, a, in, a large, in a large commercial building or mixed building, hotel, retail, convention center, there would be thousands of systems that operate that building. You just don't see it. The building looks very nice. But when you go in the back, in the guts of it, there's thousands of pieces of equipment. Our models optimize all of that. And that's why it's so cool. It doesn't actually require anybody to do anything. The, the, the algorithm does it on its own. But there's a babysitter for the algorithm, right? It's a no. It's a sales. It's a self-driving building, Joe. I mean, like somebody watches it though, right? (laughs) Oh yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like somebody babysits algorithm at Honeywell. They're like, or you know, we're gonna. (laughs) Now I'm curious to know. Little change of topic here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been there about three years, right, at Honeywell? Mm -hmm. So my fourth year. This is your fourth year. Mm -hmm. What is the thing, the accomplishment that you're most proud of or the project that you're most proud of? I think it's the creation of Honeywell Forge. Uh, it, it took a lot of blood, sweat and tears and we're not done yet, but we're well on our way. So when we started, we had hundreds of little projects across the whole company. Everyone was trying to do software, but the, the approach was basically, hey, I've got a hardware widget. Let me put some software around it and it'll say something about what this piece of this hardware widget does. But we weren't really focused on the customer as well as we should have. And we weren't solving big problems. So in my mind, we want to solve big problems that the world has. Safety, productivity. And that means we're going to go after multi-billion dollar markets market opportunities so we so that was one big change second one was we developed some secret source technologically so why do something unless you've got something special no one else has so we have something that we think we've built in Honeywell Forge that we think is pretty special pretty cool and then we figured out how to make money doing it so that's kind of where we are at and we're at the point now where we want to scale this big time and when I say scale, I don't mean like 10% growth. I mean, really scale it. So I'm pretty pleased at how far we've come from being a hardware company in such a short period of time. It sounds interesting. The way you're describing it, it's like you're an enterprise who's been following the same rules as like a startup, just like on a different level, right? It feels, it feels like you're starting new businesses like within Honeywell, right? We are. Yeah, no, we are. I mean, we are doing things that I think are pretty novel and that solve a big problem. And we're all aligned on that mission. Like, We want to make a difference. We want to do something that's cool and remarkable that is a problem worth solving uh, in the world. Okay, so I've got a good, I've got a good question for you. Okay, yeah. so, because you're getting my gears going. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's say you pick this new multi-billion dollar market that you're going to mm-hmm. go into. And then... Because I know how to do it like on a smaller level, like as an individual with a, with a small team. I don't know mm-hmm. how it looks up there. So that's what I'm going to get to. So like, let's say, Honeywell, you guys pick this, this new market 
uh, let's say it's maybe safety because you mentioned safety, and then you want to go in here and, and so you're going to do some research on you know what type of, of products or solutions or problems that you can solve, and then you're going to go talk to customers you, you know to understand the problem better, mm-hmm. right? But can you can you walk me through that startup process as an enterprise mm-hmm. and what it actually looks like on like a day to day execution? Yeah, I mean, look, it's no different from a startup. The first thing you do is you want to figure out, you have to have an idea of a big business, a big problem a customer has and a concept of how you might tackle that problem in a way that's five to 10 times better than the current approach. So let's say here the problem was, how do you optimize a factory? Well, there's lots of ways of doing that. You can do lean, you can buy different types of software that are point solutions. There's lots of ways. But so when we looked at that problem, we said, well, that's a pretty big problem, but how do we solve in a way that's 10x better? And so we had a concept of that. And then you have to go through what most startups go through, which is find product market fit. Is what you're building aligned with, you know, a customer's need? And so in the case of say factory productivity, you can solve that lots of ways. You can buy services, you can buy IT software, you can, you know, have tools that help you drive a lean, um, you know, Six Sigma program. Well, we found product market fit. We figured out how to scale. We figured out some secret source because you want technological differentiation. And then you have to find customers that share your vision, right? Because it's not, when you have a new concept, it's not like there's a market for it. You've got to find the customers who go, oh, yeah, I have that problem. I want to solve it that way. So product market fit, find early adopters that have a shared vision with you. And then once you've cracked that, then it's just about can you scale this thing, which is make sure you build it in the right way and scale it and so forth. That's the process we go through. Yeah, I, I, I'm excited. Okay, so um, let's, let's back up to your your interviewing customers or you're talking to customers. Mm-hmm. So at a startup, it's pretty clear because it's, it's often, it's like the founder, but at your level, you guys have so much resources. You could boot up a mm-hmm. team. Like how, do, when you were going into this new market, were you making the phone calls to yeah. the customers? It's like you're yeah. doing like the project lead yeah. or the CEO of the business units doing it. Yeah, I, I'm doing it. I have general managers that might be looking after an area. Like I have general manager for aerospace, one for buildings, one for, uh, manufacturing and we all do it personally we are running it like a startup so yes honeywell has a lot of resources but we don't um we operate like a startup and amazing and we have to i have to be convinced of product market fit myself before i want to put more money into it that makes sense about the buildings then because you had some you guys had some inside information because you were partly the customer owning the yeah. thousand plus properties and so you yeah it was very clear there because you could operate almost like internally and know what you're doing would serve the outside mm-hmm. market that's that's useful it is and the other the other advantage be doing this within a company like Honeywell is that we have access to customers lots of them and not all of them are good for us in terms of proving product product market fit but a lot of them are, and it's actually figuring out who they are. So we actually solve one of the biggest problems startups need, which is access to customers. That's actually harder than the development itself because we can develop lots of things, you know? So I, I'm, before I had, I made money by building apps and selling them. So I just mm-hmm. build an app, 
for a year or so and then sell it or a company would hire me and I'd build mm-hmm. a team and build apps. Right. This business that I'm in now is the first time that like I've ever run sales teams and mm-hmm. you know, the whole the whole gamut and actually operated the business versus just build the technology. So I'm all bright eyed and bushy tailed and excited <laughs> about <laughs> all of these things I'm learning. Um, and you are exactly right because the other CEOs that I get to talk to that are around my, my level are uh, explaining to me that their number one source of increased revenue is existing customers. Like they sell mm-hmm. more to their existing customers. That's a larger portion of their revenue than new customers every month. And so that was uh, news for, for me. I was like insight. I was like, all right, well, mm-hmm. clearly we need to offer another product. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's the path of least resistance because one, you already have a relationship and yeah. two, they trust you. And so why not start there? Why do the hard part first? Do that part. And then once you do that, then you go conquer another area. So we're very focused on not trying to stray too far away from the industries we serve. Honeywell serves. Well, it makes sense. Do more of yeah. what works and bring more value to what we, it's not like we want it to be difficult. We're already doing a difficult thing. Let's use every advantage that we have. Exactly. Okay. Next question I'm excited about. All right. So when I go do public speaking, mm-hmm. uh, I did like 50 something talks last year, zero this year mm-hmm. though. The, the number one most requested topic of conversation when I do paid talks is about fear. It's about getting these mm-hmm. executives that are in high level positions uh, to not be scared. And so- Of speaking? Of speaking? Oh, no. What? Of like taking action as a business unit, uh, like as a head of a business unit, mm-hmm. like trying new things. And I was actually surprised because, you know, for me, I'm just always around like creative people and founders. And, you know, you don't, when you have a, an enterprise company and, you know, you maybe have like 50 executives across the world that are heads of business units that have already been there for 20 years mm-hmm. or got bought and then rolled into the company and they're just kind of hanging out. Fear just tends to be a topic of conversation that people you know, are continuously mm-hmm. asking me to speak to executives about. I think it's heavily like culture related, but I'm curious to like for you, because you're in this spot right now where you're in a large mm-hmm. enterprise, you're acting like a startup. How do you, how do you manage fear within executives? Well, you, you, what I look for, I look for two traits in what we now, in our business, what we do. Cause remember our, we're inventing stuff and we're builders and we're, you know, we, we want to release new things all the time. So the two traits that I look for is I look for highly confident people because they're more likely to be, to think big and be audacious about what can be achieved. And they're not happy with the status quo. So they're imagining a world in, in a very different way. But I also look for highly skeptical, very highly humble people, because in that humility, you're going to be skeptical of your own idea, because you don't want to fall in love with an idea that's bad and launching bad products fast isn't a great thing. So you want confidence to want to tackle the mission, but you want humility to question yourself and say, is that the right way? Should we make a change? Are we getting indications from the market or customers that they like it? How should we do things differently? And so those two traits together at least help you not be arrogant and also help you challenge your own thinking oh. and bring on diverse teams that can you know, challenge your own thinking. And because we're competing for the customer, we want them to have the best experience and we want them to have 
the best results from what we do, so we compete for them. And so we should be prepared to debate ideas and come up with better ones. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> I love it. You're very, you're motivating. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but you're passionate. And when you, I always say there's no motivational speakers. There's just people who are motivated in life and sometimes they get on yeah. stage and speak. Yeah. But Joe, you know this, it's more fun to do something new. And to the question of fear, in my case in Honeywell, a lot of people would look at the role I have and go, oh my God, that's really career risky. And you could be running a big division and everything's stable. You have more people and it's much more certain. And I say, if the it's an existential question for Honeywell. 10 years from now, we will not be an interesting business if we do not have digital and software in our shop that someone has to do it. And I might as well do it and it'll be fun along the way. So I don't think of risk in that way. I mean, I'm not reckless, but I am, I like, I guess I'm a change junkie. Yeah. <laughs> I like the change. No, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, me too. I like things to be new and fresh. And personally, you know, one of the things we are, are struggling with is like operating a business is you want to do new things all the time, but mm -hmm. it's often the things you were doing that are bringing you in cash. So yep. through journaling, through self-reflection, those types of of skills is how I keep my creativity like in balance with what we're mm -hmm. doing. And then also having a really, really strong executive team that will challenge questions, that will have their own ideas. Um, I that that has brought in balance to to like my circle. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. No, you're I'm following in your footsteps. You're you're awesome. This is a good interview. I like you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I like you too, Joe. <laughs> have you have you seen um this thing called Portal. It was in the news recently and it's like this uh, 3D hologram teleconferencing thing. Have you, have you come across this? I haven't all? seen, I haven't come, I haven't come across that one, but I've come across other similar technologies. That's great. What do you think? Cause I don't know. I don't know if those are, I mean, I feel like I'm looking, I, I hate being a naysayer. Cause like, I don't want to be that person that when the computers mm -hmm. are the size of a room, you say computers are never going to be anything. Right. But I guess what I'm saying, I don't know too, is like, I don't know if I, I wouldn't buy one today, <laughs> mm -hmm. but they're really well, cool Joe, looking. Maybe they are cool looking and they're probably expensive, but here's one way I look at new technologies. The problem with new technologies, when we look at it today, is they're generally inferior to conventional technology. Like take the mobile phone. It's a bad computer when it first came out. It doesn't have a keyboard. It didn't have a screen, didn't have a lot of compute. And so it's easy to dismiss new technologies as something that, well, it can't really solve the problem that a computer can solve, a desktop computer. But it does one thing really well. And in the mobile phone, it gave you location services. It gave you location. A desktop doesn't do that. So without, and, and without a mobile phone, today there would be no Uber. There would be a, you know, there would be no DoorDash. So, the fact is, even though when it first comes out, it looks inferior in lots of ways compared to conventional technology, it does one thing super well. And when you look at what that one thing super well is, that's the get, that's the gateway towards new services that you can't imagine today. So what's the one thing for Forge? Forge isn't a new computing paradigm so much. I think what we're trying to do is make it really easy to collect data 
you know, economical to collect data and efficient to collect data from the physical world. I love That's it. one thing we're trying to solve. And the second thing we're trying to solve is we're trying to make it as scalable as, as the IT world is. So we call this extensibility. That's a very complex data architecture that we've put in place. And, you know, we, um, we think it's pretty special. And then the third thing is we're trying to drive what we call autonomous control, which is this closed loop execution. And we're able to do all of those three. It will drive significant value for customers. And then who like are your customers today? Like who do you target? Like who's, who's most likely to purchase like technology from Forge? Mm -hmm. We target um, business leaders in the C-suite. So they could be CFOs or COOs or, CIOs. We've got a few of those on the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. You should give them my card. Um, and, Done. Uh, and I'll give you an amazing recommendation. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I have a cool email address, by the way. What is it? It's the letter Q at Honeywell.com. Oh, come on now. <laughs> that is, yeah, you know, it is. It is. How cool is that? That is really cool. Did you have? Yeah, it did is. they have that available, or did someone cry because it got taken away? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> No, no, I managed to finagle a pretty cool email address. See, you know how to get around. I, I, I want to know about, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, so um, I forget what we were talking about. Okay, but. well, because I want to go into M&A stuff because you have background, you mm -hmm. have a lot of experience in mergers and acquisitions, and you just sound like a very sharp person who knows how to focus, achieve results, and just a, a load of experience. And so I'm curious... What are some of the takeaways from your, you know, seven, 10 plus years and mm -hmm. mergers and acquisitions? Like what, like if I had to say, I'm interviewing Q today and mm -hmm. she's going to give me like the top, you know, one to three things that are important in a mergers and acquisition scenario, what would yep. those be? I think a couple of things. I think at the end of the day, acquisitions have to create value. And so you have to have a thesis for why you're the best owner. Of a, of a business you want to acquire. And it, it can't be because of ego or vanity or you want to be the biggest. It's got to be, how do, why do we think we can create more value? So the business you buy needs to fit into your, your model, how you create value for your investors. Um, and so as an example, in my software business, if I went and bought a business, I don't, I don't spend a lot of capital because it's all people. You know, we code and we produce software. So we don't have to incorporate a lot of capital. But if I went and bought a business that had a lot of investment in capital, that wouldn't really fit my model as an example. And so I'm not the best owner of that asset as an example. So I think you've got to have a clear idea of how you're going to create value over and above the price you pay. The second thing is the people. You've got to have a cultural fit with how you work and how they work, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we created Honeywell Connected Enterprise, the software business, because we do, we're kind of misfits within Honeywell. I say that affectionately. Um, my leadership team is called the Get Stuff Done team because, you know, why would you like the corporate label? It kind of sounds like Dilbert. So we're, we're the GSDT. And, and so when we talk to startups, they feel like, you know, we're kind of a similar group of misfits that can get together and create something special, you know? So, the people side is important. And then the third one is don't overpay. It's very tempting to go get something, but there's going to be a price at which it doesn't work and it's hard to you know, generate the value. So you've got to be careful of the price you pay.
Oh, that's some good. See that that's that experience coming out so fast. Okay, so let's go let's go personal here. So you are like an executive of a large company, you know, lots of responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. For me myself, I was just out in Colorado last week. It was the mm-hmm. first time I traveled the whole year, but I did that in order to, you know, get out and clear my mind and kind of like reconnect with myself. I have there's this for me as an individual being alone with myself like really allows me to connect back to the most important things and then how determine how the current path I'm on helps me achieve those things. I'm curious, like, how do you disconnect? How do you take care of yourself? Well, Joe, you're very wise to do that. And a lot of people don't do that, you know, because I think people think about time management as being the scarcest resource, but actually I think the scarcest resource is your energy. And so if you don't find a reservoir to generate energy, then you can't give energy to others. And if you can't give energy to others, then you can't motivate them and help move the organization, particularly if you have a large organization. So I think you're very perceptive in doing that for yourself. For me, I like to spend time with my family. It's kind of a boring answer, but I like to do that and I like to read a lot uh, because it helps me with new ideas. And I like to spend time with people who come from different, different environments. My sisters are in the media industry, so they're in film and television. And so they're different. They're not corporate types. And so they laugh at me when, when I speak because apparently I sound very corporate. And my Australian accent is going, so I get a lot of, you know, hell for embarrassing the country that way. Um, but, uh, you know, but I get different perspectives from creative types and, you know, people who are in different fields. And it makes you think differently because you, you want the creative and percept- perceptive shifts in business so that you can see new things that people aren't necessarily seeing. Have you ever come full circle where you create so much variety in your life because you desire mm-hmm. it that you realize you need some more structure? Yeah, I'm sure that's true. You know, <laughs> an overused strength is a weakness. Yes, I've <laughs> definitely done that. I got, you get too creative too, for too long of a period of time and you're always doing new, 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 new. Mm-hmm. And then you realize I'm not grounded. And so for me, <laughs> life has become this unbelievable balancing act between having a routine, but yet time for like creativity and then that, that structure. And then basically I call it like spectrum swinging, right? Like mm-hmm. getting that pendulum like tighter and tighter and tighter yep. to where I can have a, a focused life, run a family. I have a family. I have a three-year-old daughter and a, and a one-year-old son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some puppies, but, uh, <laughs> it sounds like bedlam yeah. I have young children myself. So, Oh, how old I have twins who are six and I have an eight year old. Your hands are full. So did you read Sheila's book then? <laughs> no, <laughs> it's I'm good. behind. I'm, I'm, I'm always about to declare bankruptcy on the reading front because I just can't, it's hard to find the time to get through all the books I want to read. You and me both. Every time a guest comes on, I'm like, they have like seven articles or 10 books. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I have my team. I was like, all right, go through. And I train them like how I read content and try to find like the most interesting stuff because I love everyone and I like getting mm-hmm. to talk to the human. But if I actually read everything there, I would put out like no content. Well, how many books do you read a year? I used to read 20, 25 a year. I was pretty disciplined, but now I'm well off that. Yeah. So I, when I found out about the power of reading, mm-hmm. I went insane. You know, twenty, 
50 plus books, mm-hmm. you know, just doing whatever I can. And then I got to this maturity after like two years of doing that, mm-hmm. where I realized, okay, there's actually this problem that can happen where you're searching for information or insight for too much, and then you're not getting your own experience. And then you need to get your own experience and take real actions. And then those things will stick with you. You know, lessons can be expensive and those are the ones like you never forget, right? Or they can be painful and you never forget them. But then I, I kind of backed up. And so now I'm reading based off of like whatever I'm interested in. And I guess it's different because when I first got into it, I was reading on like how to be successful at business. Mm-hmm. And there was just 1 million different ways. Like everyone mm-hmm. had a system. And what I realized after, like if I were an AI algorithm, after consuming all of that data, what I realized is they all have, each person has like one system and they execute it consistently. So I need mm-hmm. to stop searching for a system, pick any one of them and just execute right, it right. for a decade and then I'll be good to go no matter what. Yep. So yep. yeah, I'm not reading a whole lot these days. I have been getting into, well, I do auto, audible books, but some people don't think that's reading. I, mm-hmm. I, if we say audible it's books reading. are reading, then, I, then I, I guess I read, you know. Well, I like podcasts too. Podcasts are interesting to listen to people's discussions especially the long format ones where they're two or three hours. You get really deep into an area. It's pretty yes. cool. Yeah, especially ones with Q. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I'm pretty sure you don't want to inflict two hours of me on anyone. No, I think we do. Your job is to be modest and my job is to be super excited. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so how, what's like the thing that you have read recently that was really good? Uh, well, the book I read, in the past week that just came out was called uh, Titans. It was, it's by Scott Davis and it's really about the industrial giants. It covers GE, Honeywell and Danaher. And so it has some lessons from the industrial world um, for the startup world. So I thought it was interesting. It was actually an interesting book to read. Favorite part, favorite takeaway? The Honeywell chapter is pretty good. What is it? What did they talk about for Honeywell? Well, they talk about how Honeywell transformed. It was on the depths of despair and was a really struggling business and how Dave Cody uh, really, you know, the point you made about consistency transformed the organization and created enormous value for uh, employees and shareholders. And um, so it tells about a lot of those stories. And it's nice, you know, it's interesting to see visionaries and, different leaders, even in industrial companies, create enormous value. Yeah, it's almost like fear can sometimes paralyze, but it can also propel you forward. Yeah. So it's not necessarily bad. No, it's not bad at all. Yeah. Like Musk is a is a titan of like today. Are you a fan of him? He is a creative source force. The number of ideas that he can come up with at any point in time is remarkable. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to meet him? I've not had a chance to meet him yet. No. I was talking to so Adam, one of our uh, production mm-hmm. engineers. His, yeah. One of his friends was like, I got to meet Musk, but it was more like me standing under a rocket engine while he talked to his friends next to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I guess that counts. Did you say hello? <laughs> I said he should have taken his camera and like gotten a selfie, like, but even though Musk didn't know, <laughs> like from behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is good. So you're you're mainly in Atlanta then? That's where you hang out? I'm mainly in Atlanta, at least this year I've hung out here, but normally I'm on the road 50% of the time. 
Okay. And then you had, you, or you have, and you talked mm-hmm. about it going away, an Australian accent. I'm assuming you spent a good, a good part of time there. Yeah, I grew up there. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I uh, grew up there, went to university there. I've lived in the U.S. now for 17 years. Oh, wow. But prior, prior to that, I was in Australia. Had still- a much better accent. <laughs> I think your accent's great. Do you oh, still have okay, family yeah. over there? I do. do have family over there. Nice. So you I get go to back go from time to time. Yeah, no, it's a great place. Does Honeywell have offices in Australia? Honeywell does have offices in Australia. You guys have offices few. everywhere. We have offices everywhere. <laughs> There's a big one right on the interstate, so like everybody sees it in Tampa, and so yeah. like for me, that's what Honeywell is because you okay. just see the giant Honeywell sign every time. And that building's been there for as as long back as my memory long. goes. It's been there a while. Yeah. Well, it is three o'clock. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much. We're going to have you on again like next year when the studio's like all finished and we'll catch up and see how things are going with Forge. Is that cool? Cool. Cool. Absolutely. Awesome. Have a great day, Q. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.